0: Good morning, family. Hope everyone's having a good Sunday so far. Uh, Thank you for joining us in worship as we uh, gather together to praise Jesus and our Father in Heaven. We are continuing our trek through the book of Acts, and so we'll be in the back half of Acts 21. If you want to get your Bibles ready, that's where we'll be uh, this morning. Uh, we've been in the book of Acts, actually, since January, as we have explored and seen and uh, uh, witnessed, if you will, the explosion of the gospel across the known world at that time, as the church was kind of birthed, and, and the church expanded, and God used different people to uh, preach the gospel to different kind of people groups, and so we've seen how God has moved throughout history, and we've also seen... From that, how God still moves in our lives and how God still moves through the church that we're part of uh, today. And so um, we're going to continue that trek as we see what God has in store for us in Acts 21. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time when we can gather together and we can sit under your word. Lord, I pray when we open it, as we read Acts, as we see how you've moved through history, that you can bring to life the truth of who you are, and the truth of how you move, and the truth of your gospel. You can bring that to life in our hearts and our minds, that we can see the truth of your love and the truth of your purpose for the church. And so, Lord, I pray for this time as we learn what you want to teach us, that as you show what we need to be shown that we can grow to be your people all the more, that we can walk in your ways, and we can uh, develop new depths of love for you and your truth. And Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when Casey and I, my wife, when we got married, actually our, our lives meshed up pretty well. We didn't go through that many hardships or struggles as we kind of brought these two lives together. Of course, there's those small kind of things you have to work out whenever you do something like that, like the fights about you're doing laundry wrong or, you know, you don't do things like my family does it and that kind of things. But they were small. They were insignificant. And so we kind of meshed well, and it was good, until the holiday season started rolling around, and we realized, wait a minute, there might be differences in our families and how we celebrate things. There might be differences in in traditions that maybe our family holds, and so Christmas ro- rolls around, and these are small things, but you know there are things we have to work through, like when do you have the traditional big meal for Christmas? Is it at lunchtime or is it at dinner time? And Casey's family was wrong, and they had it at lunchtime, and and then what you know wanted to do Mexican food at night, and uh, that's just absurd, and uh, and stuff like that. But you know there are small things you could work through. That it was not that big of a deal. But when we had kids, all of a sudden other traditions started to come to be and started we had to work through that. Like Casey grew up doing Santa Claus with her kids. And so she wanted to celebrate that with her kids. And and I grew up not doing Santa Claus with our kids because we're holier and and um, <laughs> and, and better. No, just just joking. If you do Santa Claus, I'm not going that's not about that. But we had to work. That out between us, and so Casey had to work out how not to do Santa Claus with kids, and so. um, But that just goes to show you how traditions can be hard to change. When when two traditions kind of come into conflict, or or when they rub up against each other, it can be hard to change or even think it. When when your own traditions start to have to be reevaluated or reexamined, it can actually be hard to change those because we hold on to them. They're identity markers. We, we kind of use them as lenses through which we view the world and, and, through, and how we think uh, the world should be. And so we hold on to these traditions and we hold these traditions to be true. But sometimes as we are examining traditions, we realize these traditions are just that, traditions. And they're maybe not even based on what is true. Or, and so you have to examine them and it's, and it's hard. We see that in families, especially when married couples join their lives together, they have to figure that out. But we also see that when it comes to the faith. Because usually people have faith traditions, and, and if you think it's hard to change a family tradition, a faith tradition is that much harder, because now this tradition on how we see God, or how we celebrate God, or worship God, is ingrained in us, and it becomes the lens through which we see our relationship with God and who He is and who we are. And so traditions regarding faith become even more a part of who we are. And so we, we kind of inherit these sometimes from either our family or from the church. Maybe we came to know Christ through and we have these traditions passed on to us and we hold them as that truth. That these are how we view God and they, they serve as that filter. And if someone was to question that, it can get uncomfortable. If someone wants to question that, it gets an uneasy feeling because we hold those and we kind of equate them with what's true so much. It's almost like you're questioning what is true. Well, in Acts 21, I believe what we see is we see Paul coming into conflict with people who had a rich tradition on how to worship God. And his very being and the gospel he preached comes into conflict with that and there's a tension and there's a question of what are we going to follow? Are we following truth or are we following tradition? So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Acts chapter 21 as we pick up the story in verse 17. If you guys remember last week, if you were with us, as we're going through the book of Acts, we saw in Acts 21 how, how Paul is headed towards Rome and people are war. Not Rome, I'm sorry, Jerusalem. And people are warning him not to head towards Jerusalem because he's going to be in prison. He's going to experience affliction. But yet he refuses to deviate from God's call, and so he's heading towards Jerusalem. And this picks up the story of what happens in Jerusalem. It says this, starting in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, and uh, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what what, what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immor- immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice that when the days of purification would be fulfilled and offering and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, "Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and in this place." For the mob of the people following, crying out, "Away with him!" This is a story about how the reception Paul receives when he comes to Jerusalem. And just to recap, to summarize what's happening, what we see is we see Jerusalem in turmoil. We see chaos erupt because Paul arrives into town. Paul returns and he's warmly welcomed by the Jewish Church of Jerusalem. If you remember, the, the the church that is in Jerusalem is is mostly made up of Jewish believers, and they still followed the law as a way to follow God. And so that is the church that welcomes him, and they they hear about what how his ministry work has what done, is his missionary journeys have resulted in and paul relates to how god has moved through the gentiles across the empire and they praise god with them because they know the gospel is being preached and people are coming to know who christ is but they have a dilemma they have this problem they say wait a minute paul we hear through the grapevine that you're teaching jews not to follow the law you're you're teaching People who who are Jewish uh, by birth, who come to know Christ to give up the law. And if you look around, the city is filled with a lot of Jewish believers. People who are ethnically Jew, but now they follow Christ, and they're concerned because you're teaching against our traditions. They think you're teaching them to give up their way of life, what makes them Jewish. And so they hash this plan and say, okay, Paul, we have four, of the, four men and they have entered into this Nazarite vow, which means they can't drink alcohol and they have to let their hair grow for a certain period. And now they're at that end stage where they're going to be purified before they shave their head and they give an offering. To please our fellow Jews who are believers in Christ, how about you go with them to the temple and you pay their expense? You give the offering for them and you enter into the last part of this vow with them and so that you show, hey, I still am a Jew, that you still honor the law. And Paul, because he's seeking unity between the Gentile church and the Jewish church, says, yes, I'll do that, and he goes with them. But when he goes there, in the process, Jewish people who see him, recognize him for who he is, it says Jews from Asia, so from Ephesus, who probably journeyed to Jerusalem just like Paul was going to Jerusalem for the feast of uh, Pentecost, and so they see him, and they assume, because they knew he was traveling with Greeks, that he brought Greeks with him into the temple, which was a no-no. no no and so they riled the whole crowd against them, and they took Paul, and they beat Paul. And it was such a commotion and chaos that actually the Roman soldiers were told, you know, basically all of Jerusalem is in chaos because of this happening. And so they rush in there, they grab Paul, you know, they get people stop beating him, and then they chain him up and say, casefully, what is going on? It's chaos, because no one can give a right answer. And we see next week as we, go, we continue through this, we see Paul's response to what's happened. But through this we actually see these two different groups of people who were enmeshed in a rich tradition who, who Paul was pre- preaching the gospel to and they were, they, know, they were being presented with the gospel and how they responded differently to what happens when truth collides with tradition. So what can we summarize here is basically truth must win over tradition tradition that sometimes when we hold traditions when it comes to the faith when we come to how we view god as i said sometimes we hold to a tradition that has been passed down by our family or maybe it's been passed down to us by a a community that we grew up in or a community that we came to know faith in and we hold that tradition and that's the lens through which we see the world in which we see god and we hold on to that and we view it as synonymous with truth with synonymous with what the bible says but sometimes we have to realize that these traditions have maybe drifted away from what the Bible says or these traditions are just man-made things and maybe, maybe are good and honoring God, but they're not the absolute truth. And when that happens, it can get uncomfortable. And what do we do? Do we follow the traditions that we have grew up with? Or do we follow what the Bible says? Do we follow truth? And the, and the Bible will teach us again and again and show us again and again, and we see examples again and again that we follow truth rather than something that we have just been uh, grown up into or follow because that's what we've always done. Truth must win over tradition. This is actually, I think, a very important thing to process in our day and age because there's a phenomenon or a trend, if you will, called deconstruction and i don't know if you're aware of this but it's this maybe it's an intellectual movement you might call it or it's this process where you you basically take your traditions or take what you believe and you 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 re-examine them and at core of this deconstruction trend is this idea that maybe you've been following things just because they're tradition and so we need to re-examine them and see if they're truth and this has come over into christianity and a lot of prominent or well-known uh, believers have follow this trend where they start to deconstruct their faith, basically see if something is true or not. And the sad thing is, whether it's YouTubers or Christian musicians or people, even former pastors, these people in this process end up giving up all truth altogether and they throw out what's true with what they've been given by their faith community. But this is important to process how do we do this? How do we look at something and see if whether something is true or not or if it's just a tradition that might be not based on what's true or, and how do we process through that? And so again and again we're told we have to go back to actually the standard of what is true, which is the Word of God, and, and, and examine it. But we hesitate to do that because it's hard. As I said, it gets weird and uncomfortable when we examine our faith traditions. We can admit that. Maybe it's something you've held to your whole life, you grew up into, your family still practices this way, but then you start examining it and you filter it through the lens of Scripture and you start to question whether we should do it that way or should we do it another way. And so we hesitate maybe to do that, but our God is a God of truth and so we can firmly walk where He leads in His truth through the Word and so we should process through how do we follow God. Because there is a difference between what is true and tradition itself. Especially when it comes to the faith. Because Christianity holds to, if you want to throw this out on your next dinner party, the correspondence theory of truth. Basically that's just a way of saying we believe what's true actually corresponds to reality. That truth is objective. There is one truth. And it's what we can We see and we know and it's what reality is. And actually we would say a step further is actually based on the one who made reality. That is what is true. And so that truth becomes the lens through now which we process and carry through all the, we look at those traditions that we might practice, these ways in which we follow that truth or the ways in which we live and filter that. And so we need to process the things we're handed down through the lens of what is objectively true, which is the word of God and the truth he gives us. So when we look at the big picture of this passage, what we see is that there is a tension happening within the whole Jewish community. A tension happening because Paul is preaching the gospel and that in some people's view, is undermining what it means to be Jewish, what it means to follow God. And so you can understand why this is a big deal. To understand the value of tradition, well, this, these are actually the identity markers. These people are saying, I am Jewish. This means I follow the law, the rules and regulations set down by God that we find in the Torah. We follow these things. That is what defines me, and that has defined our people. And now they hear Paul coming up, and they think he's telling people who are Jewish not to follow that anymore. They hear this, and they say, maybe he's telling people not, they don't have to follow these rules and regulations anymore." just like he's telling the Gentiles. they don't have to be jewish to be a christian they can be a gentile who follows christ and so you can see this tension develop in both groups of jewish people the, the christian believers i mean the jewish believers as well as the jews who do not know jesus christ because they're feeling this tension and they're wondering what is happening is this guy actually preaching against the law is he preaching against the temple And so they're struggling to understand it because they're struggling to understand what is Paul bringing to them and teaching? What is he telling them? And so when we see this conflict, we can say it's a conflict between tradition and truth, but really what this conflict is and ends up being is a conflict between the gospel and the law. The law is the decree, is what we get from the Old Testament. It's these boundary markers, it's these things you follow as you do. and the Jewish people took that, and that's how they followed God. That's how they identified themselves, and that's how they, they, they practiced discipleship and grew their family, was following the law. But they had a tendency now to take that law and actually make it what brought someone into good graces with God. They had a tendency to take that and make it something where you followed to be. In God's good gracious. And Paul was coming and he was preaching the gospel, which said, no, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then whatever you did, whether you followed the law or whatever, you, you followed God to the best of your ability, and that was separate from how you come to know who Jesus Christ is and how you are saved. But there's this tension because they were reversing it and they were putting that law as that way in which someone can come To know who Christ was. This was a prominent theme in in Paul's writing. If you read his epistles, you see this again and again how he's speaking out against people who tried to make this, this role based way in which we can somehow earn our way or achieve our way into God's good graces. And he said, That's absurd. You can't do that. It's impossible. You're all sinners. We're all sinners. We cannot do that. We can only be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ because he has saved us. He has accomplished the law. He has fulfilled all we need for salvation. And now he gives that to us through his spirit. And that is how we are saved. But humans, us, you and me, we can admit that, we're idiots. We're prideful. We think we got this when we don't got this. And so we drift naturally back to trying to earn and achieve. And that's really what the Jewish have a history of that way of trying to earn and achieve, thinking these laws, these regulations, are what define them as God's people. And you can see this again and again. You can read uh, the book of Galatians, and Paul is doing a full frontal assault upon this idea, saying this is absurd. You only can come to uh, God through Jesus Christ by grace. It was, and it came up again and again through history. If you, if you know your church history, the Protestant Reformation, when the, the Protestant church was formed at the basis in the core, it, it was this argument about the difference between the law and the gospel, and that we're saved by grace. And that is what we do. And then we follow God, and then we walk in His ways, and that, that does not achieve or earn anything to us to walk in, to be in God's good gracious. And we see that again and again. And actually it still rages in the church today. Debates still happen about how is someone saved? Is it because they're following God first and then they're saved? Or is it because they believe in Jesus and they're saved through that? And so this conflict is there, and it's a question of the gospel or law. What are we going to follow? Is it are we following the truth that the, the word lays for it, or are we following the traditions passed down and the man made things in which we're told how to follow? Which mean, which brings us to the plan these elders in Jerusalem had. This plan, because they, they truly they they were they were not in argument with Paul about theology, but they were worried about how people would perceive him and how they would perceive the 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 Christian Jewish people would perceive his message. And so they hatched this plan that he would show how he, he observes the law. He agrees to go. Long, Paul agrees to. Go along with it. Why? Because he's wanting to show that unity between the Gentile church and the Jewish church. That's one of the main things through the whole book of Acts. We see it again and again, that this church, the global church, made up of all these people from different races, from different social economic status, it's one church that worships the same God and they're brought together in unity. It's that theme that's brought up again and again. Even preloaded in Acts 1.8 when we, Jesus, right before he ascends to heaven, tells his followers, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of earth that they're going to be spreading the gospel across. And when the gospel goes into Samaritans, the, 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 the group that's kind of half Jew, it, you know, the, the apostles went down there to certify it. When the gospel went into the first Gentiles, when Peter went and preached to Cornelius and his family, he had to come back and actually convince the Jewish people, this is a good thing. This is the gospel spreading like Jesus said it would. And again, again, you see that how Paul, when he arrives back in Acts 15 into Jerusalem, they have that whole council where he's basically saying, see, God is at work, not even through the traditions of the Jewish people, but through the gospel in itself. And they agreed and they celebrate that. And so they hatched this plan because Paul wants that unity. This is one church on one mission celebrating and worshiping one God. And so he agrees. And some people argue that Paul shouldn't have agreed. That somehow by him agreeing to go through this process, he was undercutting his argument or he was was showing that he was compromising uh, the gospel. I don't agree with that because I think really what you see here is not so much an issue of salvation because both the Jewish church and the Gentile church, Paul, agreed that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And it wasn't a moral kind of quandary because both groups believed that we now follow God and that the law of God is a good guide to how we follow God. But it's it's that second process of how we follow God. What was going on here really is how do we deal with the traditions? the ceremony, the customs of the people, the ceremonial law. How do we deal with that? Because Paul and, elders, Paul and the elders in Jerusalem agreed theologically on how to follow Christ. They, they agreed, they agreed uh, um, in, ethic, in the realm of ethics, knowing that we're supposed to follow God and follow His moral law, but they were just trying to think of how do we now navigate tradition and where does that fit in? And the solution of Paul submitting to this purification right was not a compromise in the sense that he was giving up what he believed as his moral principles. No, it was concession in the area of practice. That he was willing to undergo this rite because he knew it would help unify the church. If you know Paul, and if you know what we're called to do when we have areas of freedom that come into conflict, you see this again and again, that he was willing to Give up his freedom in Christ if it would help the unity of the church. I mean, you can just read that in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 19 through 23. I'm just going to read a part of that. It says, This is Paul speaking. He says, Though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under law, became as one under law, though not being myself under law, that I might win those under law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might, may share with them in its blessings. It's this idea that the unity of the church was bigger and more important than his own preference on how he knew he was free to follow Christ. So Paul does this. He goes to the temple and chaos erupts. People see him. It's like, what is this guy doing here? And they rally their troops and say, nah, this is insane. He shouldn't be here. He probably even brought one of those Greeks that he was traveling with into our temple. And what's, all, what's interesting to me is when we read this, it's so similar to the greeting he got so often in other cities around his journeys. It reminds me of when he when it, when uh when it was in Ephesus and and the people had a riot and all they could shout was great is Artemis of Ephesus Ephesus and this idea that uh, that they couldn't have any argument against him they just they started a riot because they didn't like how what he was teaching kind of reminds me of when he was in Corinth and the Jews rallied people in and brought Paul before the pro trying to uh, have these trumped up com- uh charges against him. so now he's in Jerusalem and it's almost like a combo of those two as chaos is erupting. They just want to be him because they don't like him and what he's saying. And I I just can't help but think the irony is so thick that Paul, seeking to honor the law, is now being beaten because they think he's teaching against the law. That he seeks to honor the Jewish people, his people, because he loves them so much that he's now being beaten because they think he is teaching against the law. And just like they got Jesus wrong, and they got Stephen wrong back in Acts 6 and 7, when they accused Stephen of preaching against the law in this holy place, thinking of the temple, they now accuse Paul of the same thing. He's preaching against the law in the temple. And they get him wrong, just like they got Jesus wrong, is that they think he's preaching against the law as a bad thing, when really he's just saying the law has been fulfilled in Christ. This temple has been fulfilled. It's found its ultimate purpose because Christ now has come. And these things God gave us, they were good, and they pointed to the fulfillment that we see in Jesus Christ. And so these things are no longer needed as ways to point to God because we have Jesus who is the culmination for fulfillment of those. And he's preaching that but they get that wrong thinking he's teaching against the law. And so when they accuse him of an outright lie that he brought a Greek into temple and so what do they do? They beat him. They continue to beat him until he's dragged away by the Roman soldiers. And when we read that we see Paul standing on the truth of the gospel even when it cost him Comfort, because truth must win over tradition, even when it hurts to stand on truth. But in this passage, I would argue, it's in these two different groups and how they respond to Paul that we see how we are supposed to spawn, respond to our own faith traditions or other people's faith traditions, and how do we work through that? And the first one is the the positive example of when Paul meets with the Jewish Christians and the elders. This is a positive example because they stand united in the truth. That these people agreed with him. They agreed with him on who Jesus was. They agreed with him on what makes them God's people. And so they stood united in truth. And that they could stand and agree that salvation was by by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. They just had different ideas of how they now walk and follow God. They just had different ways in which they practiced discipleship. And I think this shows the actually right attitude we should have when we come up against traditions is that if we're united in the truth, if we're united that salvation is through Christ alone and we can share that with one another, then these traditions that we might have that seek to guide us and seek to direct us in that truth and point to God, they're good ways of discipleship, and so we can honor each other's traditions and we can celebrate each other's traditions as long as they are grounded in the truth. And, that, and when we see Paul being willing to be flexible and actually f- and go back and honor the law and go and do this oath that, and this purification ritual, it's actually showing us that the unity of brothers and sisters is so important that we actually should be willing to have a concession of practice not giving an inch on what is true, not giving an inch on the gospel, but when it comes to practice, we can see different brothers and sisters who celebrate and worship God in different ways, and we might not disagree with them, I mean, we might not agree with them, but we can also stand if they actually stand on the truth and say they're our brothers and sisters, and say there are different ways in which we can follow and honor God as believers in Jesus Christ because we're united in who Christ is. So it helps us process when we come up against traditions that might be foreign from our own. That we don't just have to combat them just because they're different than how we grew up. We can actually together examine them and take, take the word and see if they line up with how God has presented his truth. But then how Paul interacts and how people treat him, the Jews, shows us the other way. Now you have to stand on truth even if people are coming at you and fighting against it, because of the attrition. Because when we see the Jewish people, the ones who do not know Christ, what they're doing, they're viewing the whole of who Paul is and his message in the gospel. They're viewing Jesus through the lens of their tradition and it doesn't add up for them. That Their tradition has now become a blindfold that does not allow them to see the gospel. Does not allow them to see the Messiah they were waiting for. Does not allow them actually to see Jesus for who he is. And so Paul, even though we have no recording right now in that section we read of him preaching the truth to them, they knew what he was preaching. They knew who he was he was upholding as god jesus christ and so they were fighting against that and he stood firm he was being beaten and at any time you know he probably could have recanted his belief in jesus you know he could probably have stood up and said brothers i'm one of you i'm following your law i promise to follow the law better and i won't speak out against it but he doesn't he stands firm on the truth because he knows that is what is important the gospel being proclaimed. And so he stands firm on that and shows us how we need to stand firm on the tr- truth when we are confronted with things that maybe push against it or are not based on it. Truth must win over tradition. And I think this is important for ourselves as well because we all have a tendency to drift. We have a tendency to Develop a tradition or follow something, or we do something because we like it, it makes sense, we're pragmatic people, we follow these things. And so we have a tendency maybe to drift off of what is true and just follow what we want. And to that, we need an anchor to keep us grounded. And are we going to choose what is true, what is presented in God's word, his truth to us, to anchor us, or are we going to follow a tradition? Just because we've always done it that way. And that's the decisions we have to make, and where are we going? Who are we going? What are we going to grab onto. I love how Hebrews 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Because it speaks of our tendency to drift away from the gospel, what has been given to us through the word. And so we need to stand. Firm on what is true. During the Protestant Reformation, there was a motto that uh, came to being as a semper reformanda. It's Latin, and it basically means always reforming. Always reformed. And this is the idea that recognizing humans have a have a tendency to drift. This is not a motto saying, hey, change is changed for good, you know, for Change is good for change's sake. No. This is a motto saying we have a tendency to drift away from the truth. That we develop things and they're not aligned with the Bible anymore because we start drifting and we take those traditions with us and morph them. And so we need to always be reforming. And how do we always be reforming? We continually go and immerse ourselves in the Word. We know it and we follow it. And we let that become the filter through we, that we examine everything we do to see if it lines up with what is true, that we always reform ourselves personally through the Word. How we view the world can drift and we can have a bad day and we see the world is horrible, we have a good day, we think it's good, but we need to always, again, come back to the truth that anchors us in God's reality and be planted firmly in that. And So we drift. So we, we have to correct that drift and why, how do we do that? By being people of the Word people who read it, who memorize it, who let it marinate our souls so that we know who God is and can respond in his ways. And when we do that, truth will win over anything that's not of God. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are and how you love us. Thank you so much for this time when we can examine your word and we can grow in your ways and that we can be encouraged and built up in your truth. So Lord, I just pray for this church as, as we continue to do what you've called us to do, that we can do everything based on your word, that on your truth, that we can be grounded in it and we can walk in your ways, that we, cannot, uh, we, that we won't deviate from what you've called us to do because we know what is true because you've given it, it to us and we can walk in your ways. Lord, we love You, we seek You. We ask that You continue to build this church, make it the church You want it to be. I pray for everyone here, everyone who's listening to this, that we can be committed to always reforming ourselves through the Word. Always going back and submitting ourselves to what You show to be true so that we can be Yours in all of our days. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.